My guest today, James Andrew Miller, writes incredible histories of some of the biggest names in culture. James has written best-selling books on the founding and history of Saturday Night Live, ESPN, and Hollywood's biggest talent agency, CAA. In all of these stories, James goes deep, explaining how these things began, how they became so insanely successful, and how some of them almost didn't make it. Now he's turned his attention to Larry David, the brains behind Seinfeld, who also happens to be the awkward creator and star of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which I am sure you have watched. But rather than write a book about the origin of Curb, James decided to record interviews with Larry and all of the stars of the show, and then turn their stories into a hilarious and fascinating podcast, which is called Origins. I'm excited to welcome James to Inside the Hive today to tell us some of the classic Larry David stories he heard along the way, and to share his thoughts on the future of ESPN and Saturday Night Live. So thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Um, uh, let's just dive right in. Uh, you have a new podcast called Origins, uh, and the first uh, season of this podcast is is looking at um, the origin of Curb Your Enthusiasm. And one of the people that you get the opportunity to talk to is is Larry David. Uh, and so I bump into celebrities all, all the time, and I'm more than happy to go and say hi to them. I'm, I'm not intimidated by them in any way, shape, or form. But Larry David seems terrifying. I feel like if I ever go up to him, I'm going to end up as a character on his show or something like that. What is he like in person? Well, uh, I mean, look, I think I, I'm, the first time I met him was maybe 15 years ago. But I think that one of the things that comes through in the podcast when other cast members talk about him is that the Larry that we see on camera, particularly in Curb Your Enthusiasm, and the Larry that exists in real life, uh, you know, sometimes has a, a very different identities, uh, because the truth is he can be, uh, warm, engaging, funny, and he's a, um, he's a very loyal friend. So I think that he may, you're right to probably be a little skeptical of what you might get in return, <laughs> but at the yeah. same time, uh, you know, I mean, he is a practicing adult. He's not this, uh, you know, yeah. Really, really odd guy that, uh, you know, is capable of anything. Well, so so tell us a couple of, could you have a couple of anecdotes from, from, from the Larry David that is real, but is it a little bit like the guy on the show? Well, I, I mentioned at the start of the podcast that I, that when I first met him, it was for, is in connection with writing the history of Saturday Night Live, live from New York, because Larry served as a writer there for a couple of years. And, uh, we wound up uh, at the Chillmark Cafe in Martha's Vineyard and having breakfast. And Tom Shales of the Washington Post was with me because he was working on the book with me. And the three of us had breakfast. And Larry, I remember distinctly, Larry had a muffin. I think almost 90% sure uh, it's it was chocolate chip. And uh, he was kind of, while we were eating, he's kind of studying the muffin and he wound up spreading it out over his plate and then calling the uh, one of the people who worked there over and to and started to inquire why there was um, less chocolate chips in the muffin um, that day than there was the previous day. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's uh, the thing that I realized very quickly was he, he was not putting on a show for us. I mean, he, he was legitimately interested, if not concerned. Um, it bewildered him and he wanted to get to the bottom of it. And so I think that, you know, 
right then and there, you, you kind of see the portrait of a mind where no detail is too small. In fact, I think one of the great things that happens on Curb is little tiny slivers of life that most of us just rush by or ignore uh, they become like uh, plot points for for Larry, and uh, you know. So as a result, it's it's all about the small stuff, and uh, and the small stuff then becomes big stuff, which is uh, you know pretty pretty funny. Well, that's it's interesting you say that because um, so Larry was behind Seinfeld, right? And um, and that was a show about nothing, um, it, it, you know, but. But yet, when you look at other shows on the air, Curb Your Enthusiasm and Seinfeld are distinct in that no one else has been able to do a show about nothing. What do you think that has been the kind of special sauce that's made that's allowed him to do that? Well, first of all, somewhat obviously, it's really hard. It's really hard. I mean, Larry is Larry David is probably I'm not blowing smoke here. Larry David is probably one of the. Uh, smartest and most gifted in uh, writers in terms of even just in terms of structure and storytelling that we've seen in I don't know how many years I, I mean I can't even I can't even think back to when it wouldn't be applicable I mean he's just really really smart and you know my my take on Seinfeld was the show wasn't about nothing it was about everything so it was about you know, a woman Jerry's dating who eats her peas one at a time. And that gives Jerry <laughs> all the license to basically vote her off the island and break up with her. Uh, there's no, you know, much like Curve, there was on Seinfeld, there was no detail that was too small. And I think one of the things that, uh, I mean, you can have a stand-up comedian maybe try and do a bit like that. But in terms of episode after episode of integrating moments like that into a, you know, a well-told story and a hilarious one at that is um, is freaking hard. And the other thing that is that applies both to Seinfeld and to most more generally uh, to to Curb is that all this is happening through somewhat unlikable characters. I mean, Jerry was likable, and Kramer, in his own way, was lovable, but. Kramer was always screwing up. Jerry was kind of selfish. You know, Lorraine could be selfish. George was, God knows, selfish. These are not people who are pandering um, to to us, to win o- us over. And in Curb, Larry, I mean, you got to call it courageous almost because he does the opposite. He He doesn't, he's not looking to be loved. In fact, he said to me in the podcast that when the show first started on the air, People were coming up to him and telling him how uncomfortable they were watching the show and how uncomfortable <laughs> his character made them. And he thought that was just great. He, he, he loved that. So when you think about those two things, you know, all these, all these details that are enough to like drive someone else crazy, plus the idea that, you know, it isn't like some wonderful, wonderful person that we already love. And that's a, that's, that's a pretty, tough trick to pull off did he have any idea when 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 they started curb that it would it would end up being what it is today what it's it's now 17 years is that right um yeah uh, a, a new season on hbo is coming out i mean you, you know i if you'd have shown me the pilot for curbed um 
I, you know, I would have thought, oh, this, this is funny. It'll, it'll maybe be around a season or so. But, but I still watch it. I think it's hilarious. And, and I, uh, I root for Larry to make a complete and utter fool of himself every week. Did he have? Did he know that this was going to be what it, what it is today? Uh, I don't believe so. And in fact, I would bet serious money that if somebody had told him back then that you're going to be doing this for 17 years, then he would say, eh, nah, let's, let's, let's not bother. Because <laughs> I think that, I mean, look, there wasn't a pilot of Curb. There was a mockumentary, a one-hour special, which uh, HBO greenlit, but it was only during, we get into this in the podcast, it was only during the filming, the, the taping of that documentary that they decided to that there might be a series in there. But the truth is that after every season, Larry went through a uh, kind of uh, not a not a crisis, but he often thought, okay, that's enough. That's it. And you can see some of the season finales where it looks like it might serve as um, not just the season finale, but the series finale. And uh, and a couple times he told people it was it. So I think this has not been anything that he's been, you know, dedicated and determined to keep running. And we've 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 never really seen anything like this in television series history. Seventeen eight. We're going to start the ninth episode seventeen years after the show began. Um, it's quite extraordinary. So you've been um, shifting gears a little here. You've been covering Hollywood and and. Uh, uh, TV, film, all of it for for a long time now. Um, w- one of the things that you know your bio, you've, you've written books on ESPN and and CAA. Um, you have Saturday Night Live and so on. One of the questions I, I wonder when I kind of look at these successful um, outlets um, is what what is the secret sauce that goes into these things being so successful? Whether it's Curb Your Enthusiasm or or SNL. Well, I and I love that question because it's the driving force behind Origins, the podcast, because that's why I kind of decided to do this. I, I love asking that question, and uh, I love reporting on, you know, the kind of big game of shoots and ladders that went into it. You know, there's that, that creative force, you know, takes two steps forward, and then all of a sudden they fall through, you know, a hole in the floor, and they're, you know, further back than when they started. And, uh, I mean, let's just take Curve for a moment because in the podcast, they talk about each, you know, each person talks about their own processes and about how they get to, to do what they're doing. And it's different for everyone. And I think that in the, in the case of Curb, you have an authentic voice in Larry who truly understands how to tell a story and even though there's no script, he's given them some broad outlines and some markers of places to wind up. So it's almost like he's saying, okay, here's a car, drive from New York to Florida, but you're going to have to stop in D.C. and you're going to have to stop in you know, South Carolina. And when we're stopped there... Wait, so, sorry, sorry to interrupt. So there's no script on the show? There's no script on the show. And I go and... Uh, we talk a lot about that in the podcast. How does uh, that the work? Podcast. Yeah. I mean, look, there were scripts on Seinfeld, and there are no yeah. scripts on Curb. So Larry and Bob Whitey, the director, and Larry Charles and Susie Essman, the characters even go into it. It's a very unique process. 
And I think that was another reason why I wanted to get into it is to showcase just how unique this show is in terms of how it comes together. So, can you, so can you explain? Can you like walk us through like how an episode would work? Because that, that's fascinating. It's that that there's. Do they say, "Oh, we're going to shoot uh, this house or on this beach, and it's about X," and then you kind of they improvise the rest, or h- how does it all kind of come together? Sometimes it may just be a line. Uh, you know, one of the things Cheryl Hines said during our audition with Larry was that um, he said, listen, you know, you and I are married and uh, you've heard it all before. And um, and so going to talk about the fact that I have given up chicken. He just gave her that. And then they did the scene. <laughs> and it turned out that Cheryl, uh, so Larry starts asking her, what are we... Uh, what are we having for dinner tonight? And she says, oh, we're having uh, potatoes, string beans, and uh, chicken cacciatore. And he said, uh, oh, wait, I told you that uh, I stopped eating chicken. And she said, well, yeah, you stopped eating chicken, but everyone else is still eating chicken. And that, you know, that really appealed to them because it showed that she was able to not only stand up to him, but that she could do something with it. That's kind of intri- interesting, right? Because if he says, so what are we having for dinner tonight? And she says, well, we're, we're having steak because remember, you're not eating chicken anymore. There's no place for that to go. And it doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't do anything, right? It just, so yeah. now we know that she's, you know, she's kind of able to have equal footing with him. But like, if you think about, if you want to go deeper a little bit in terms of how these episodes are constructed, Sometimes there might just be a line that a, 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 an actor will, a cast member will be given. Or sometimes it's, it's just the idea of a line. So you'll have a lot of freedom within, you know, that scene. But at some point, he may need you to say a certain thing, you know, and... uh and then it goes from there. And that's why they do a lot of takes. And that's why you have to be really, really good if you're on this show. So, so, so the, 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 um, the thing that's so fascinating about that is if I, that were me, not only would I not be able to come up with those pithy lines, but I would probably be laughing most of the time. Do they have to do retakes a lot? Is it, is, 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 I mean, do, the, do they crack up or are they good enough that they can hold their laughter like someone? Oh, no, no, no. They, they definitely crack up and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, J.B. Smoove, who plays Leon Black, who's like Larry's sidekick over the last several seasons, and the two of them are just beyond stellar together. He he talks in the podcast about how many times Larry would just crack up and they'd have to you know stop shooting because he 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 just couldn't handle it. And uh, Ted Danson does the same. And Bob Einstein, who plays Marty Funkhauser talked about that as well um in, in fact there's a there's a key scene in the uh, seinfeld reunion episode where marty tells jerry a joke and marty takes us behind the scenes in terms of how many times i think they he said they did 10 takes because jerry just kept on cracking up could not hold a straight <laughs> face during it and um so that's pretty funny but yeah because you don't know what's going on you don't know what's coming it's um, it's hard, you know. You 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 can't, yeah. Uh, you you got to you got to stay in the game. 
So before, before we get back to the, the secret sauce question, um, one, one, one other curb, curb question. What was some of the, can you give us a, a fun anecdotal story you heard uh, that, that stands out to you um, when you were interviewing people for the podcast, whether it was something that ended up in the podcast or, or on the cutting room floor or the outtakes or something like that? Sure. Well, first of all, just a, an FYI, nothing's, there is no cutting room floor because uh, what we're also doing with Origins is two weeks after each chapter debuts, we're releasing the original, we call them Origins Originals. We're releasing the, the, the raw podcasts that I used right. to edit from. So that's pretty cool. But I mean, I guess, look, one of my favorites is J.B. Smooth tells this story without even a comma or a semicolon, mind you, of how he got to be on the show. And it is circuitous. It is um, downright hilarious. And I just let it run because there was just no way to stop it. And it's such an extraordinary, it's such a crazy, extraordinary Hollywood story that you just can't help but but love him and it. And... um, can you, you know, give us gotta, the, the 140 character version of it? The 140 character version is he was in his uh, apartment one day with his wife, and they had just finished having what he calls hot dog soup. And uh, he was watching <laughs> Curb, and uh, and he just says, I just love this show. I just love this Larry David. And his uh, girlfriend at the time, now his wife, said, I'm going to tell you, honey, one day you're going to be on that show. One day you're going to be on the show. And yeah, 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 yeah. He goes out to L.A. for a funeral, and I'm, I hesitate to do this because there's just no way that, you know, I can, uh, you know, as a Jewish kid from Brooklyn, I can do justice to J.B.'s telling of the story. But Well, you've uh, got us halfway there, so keep going. Suffice it to say that he goes out to L.A. for a funeral for a friend, and while he's there, he visits his new agent, and they tell him, he's only in L.A. for like a day, and they tell him that... If he wants, he could audition for Curb that afternoon. And that sets in motion this crazy thing with back and forth across the country and snowstorms and, uh, you know, a comedy set where he wasn't supposed to curse. And it's just crazy. But he brings it all together. And uh, you just you just can't help but love the guy a thousand times more after hearing this. That's so funny. So, so yeah, so back to that secret sauce. So what is it that makes these companies um, and these institutions and these shows and things so successful? I mean, I, I, I live out in L.A. now and have experienced the whole Hollywood thing. And, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of things that are bought every year that go absolutely nowhere. And there are things that actually get produced that go absolutely nowhere. And there are things that have entire seasons that go nowhere. And, and, and yet... There are these outliers, if you will, like the Seinfelds and the Curbs Your Enthusiasms. And, and then, of, of course, there are the agencies and, and things like that and SNL and things. How do they, how do they pull it off? Is it, is, it, you know, is it that they get the right people in the room together that are all you know, perfect? Or is it that it's, you know, is it right time, right place? So what do you think your, your, your viewpoint is on that? Well, the thing that turns me on about reporting on this is uh... – that there are unlimited answers to the question. Because if there was one question, right, Nick? I mean, if there was one answer, then it'd be like, oh, you got to get these people in the room. And then Mm. every time you get these people in the room or every time you follow these rules, it happens. And it turns out that, you know, there aren't, this isn't math. 
it isn't an equation. And so there are so many independent variables involved that, I mean, it leads to William Goldman's famous quote, of course, which is nobody knows nothing. I mean, let's remember that Seinfeld, when people saw the pilot to Seinfeld, not a lot of people were impressed. It only got an order for four episodes. I think they aired it during the summer. So, I mean, you can't really say that everybody understood just how unbelievable it was going to be from the beginning. And that's another reason why some people who have already been enormously successful, they wind up doing something, then it crashes and burns. So I think that, you know, the whole idea of origins is to go back and to trace the pedigree of this specific success story and to talk about, you know, some of the reasons why this one wound up hitting, you know, some of the reasons why this one became, as you say, one of these outliers. And in the case of Curb, clearly, you know, the the most obvious answer and the biggest part of it was just Larry David's crazy mind and his, you know, his expertise, for lack of a better word, in crafting uh, stories. And um, And then I think I would add one more thing to that, which is his, you know, his fearlessness, because let's remember on top of all this stuff, Larry is also very comfortable, in fact, willing, anxious to play a character that we don't necessarily love. He tells me in the podcast that when the show started airing, people were coming up to him saying that they they found watching the show and watching his character in particular to be really, really difficult to watch. And he was like, he had he said to me, I, I had no idea I had that effect on people, and I loved it. I mean, how, how many how many actors, you know, actors want to be loved. I mean, they they want to be the hero. They want to be the one that everybody's looking up to, or the one. And and Larry is one hundred and eighty degrees uh, different. He he's willing to be humiliated. He's willing to be yelled at. He's willing to yell at people. He's willing to be politically incorrect. He's willing to put himself in situations that, I mean, most of us would never go you know, within a thousand miles of, uh, I mean, you just, you, you know, these things that happen on the show that are, I, I mean, a Girl Scout comes over to, to sell Girl Scout cookies and then all of a sudden she has yeah, to use the bathroom. It's the first a, time she gets yeah. her period. I mean, like who's made, I mean, what? On I know. Earth? I, I, I was watching that and cringing, thinking to myself, uh, how do cringing. they even go there? It's, uh, you know, so. Cr- cr- cringing. I mean, you know, Palestinian chicken. I, I mean, the idea that, you know, Larry and Jeff are sneaking over to this place because the chicken is so good, but they happen to be, you know, P.S., they're anti-Semites. Uh, I mean, you know, there's no end to it. Uh, and so I think that that kind of, uh, it's it's both recklessness and uh, gumption, right? So uh, that combination is, uh, you know, proves to be pretty damn powerful. So let's um, let's move over to some of the, the the stories you've covered for over the years. Um, uh, ESPN, um, you wrote a book on on the company, um, and which did very very well. Um, but yet today, when you look at ESPN, it is in a tremendous amount of trouble. Um, what do you think is going to happen? How do you think this is going to play out? Well, uh, I mean, not to be nitpicky, let's just start with I. I, I'm not sure that they're in a tremendous amount of problems, uh, trouble. They're 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 definitely definitely going through uh, a process where I mean, look, 
they used to be so dominant and they used to have such secure, you know, revenue streams that it was, it was ridiculous, right? Uh, I mean, uh, it, it, it was, it was unbelievable. And now because of cord cutting and other issues, uh, you know, they're not as invincible as they were, but let's not feel too sorry for them because they're still making tons of money. I just mentioned that parenthetically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Sounds good. I, I mean, look, one, one of the things that ESPN has to figure out is, you know, what are they going to do about the future? What is their, um, what is their strategy moving forward? And that has to, um, incorporate the fact that, you know, when college kids move out of, uh, the, the dorms or their parents' house and they get a new apartment, it's not like they're sitting around waiting for the cable guy. They, they're not, they're not subscribing to cable, you know, as much. Well, yeah, uh, there's a, there's a story this week of, um, uh, that now 22 million U S adults have canceled cable. Um, uh, the, the, the graphs are just are sinking and, and it seems that it seems that ESPN is one of the outlets that suffers the most, most from that. Right. Right. Well, remember they're getting, you know, about $7 a month from each of those people. So, you know, uh, it, it adds up rather quickly. And I think that's one of the, you know, formidable challenges that they're faced with. And I think that they're coming to grips with it and there's not one clear answer. I think they're trying to solve that problem and other problems through a variety of attempts. But, you know, we're watching a very dynamic time, both for ESPN and the entire sports um, television area, because uh, there are no there are no certainties anymore, and there's a lot of competition for people's eyeballs now. So you just said that they make seven dollars a month. Um, uh, so if 22 million people have canceled their subscription, that's that's 154 million dollars that vanishes over almost two billion over. over well, I don't a think year. I don't think I don't think ESPN is up to twenty two million. I think they may have lost thirteen million, maybe around twelve to thirteen million over the past several years. But still, it's so serious that's a, money. That's a billion dollars in, in revenue. How do they make that up, or or does they does the company just have to change and adapt and become something different? Well, the company has to change, adapt, and be something different. But they also have to make it up because if you're Bob Iger at the parent company in Disney and Burbank. You know, you don't want them to all of a sudden just, you know, shrug their shoulders and say, well, we can't give you as much money as we used to because people aren't, want, you know, people aren't uh, paying their cable provider anymore. Um, so they're coming up with OTT solutions and they're coming up with partnerships with college conferences and developing things like the SEC network. And uh, like I said before, just a host of possible alternatives to get that money back. And do you think they can pull it off, or do you think that that we're going through such a, a massive shift in in what is television and how we consume television and so on that they uh, that they won't be able to? I mean, my opinion is that they won't be able to. That that um, when you look at the way you know print advertising has has changed to going online um, uh, and and the trouble that media companies have gone through. When you look at the way you know, Netflix and Amazon um, have affected the television industry and the way we watch shows and the way people pay for shows and so on and so forth has um, had a huge effect on that. It seems that the way we consume sports now live on Twitter for free while you're 
you know, tweeting about it or, um, you know, using an app where you can kind of see from 17 different angles or all these different things. It seems that, and then also the commentary becoming replaced by the people in your social networks and so on. It seems that ESPN doesn't have a, a way back necessarily in the same way that, that, it, that it existed five years ago. Well, I mean, I agree with a lot of what you just said, particularly your last clause, which is, you know, particularly the way it existed, you know, years ago. I don't think, look, there was a period of time, Michael Eisner engineered this uh, after they bought Cap Cities ABC, which ESPN was part of, where there was a 20% compounded, compounded increase in what ESPN was getting from the cable providers every single year for seven years. That's what built the gigantic moat around ESPN. That's why they were able to go and buy so much live rights and, you know, pay so much more than anybody else was willing to do because of their dual revenue stream and so much money coming in. So I think that there's going to be an ESPN five years, 10 years from now. Uh, I'm not sure whether it will still be owned by Disney. I'm not sure, but I do think it's going to be viable and I think it will be delivering sports content in whatever way we're consuming it. But I don't think it's going to have the dominance and certainly the just the financial margins that it did in the late 90s and, you know, in the first decade of this century. Um, I think those things are uh, are going to be very difficult to achieve again. So in a similar similar ilk, um, uh, Saturday Night Live, which you also wrote a book about, um, uh, has seen the opposite happen, thanks to a certain President Donald Trump. It makes me nauseous to saying those words. But um, uh, did, did have you been uh, you know paying attention to the to the SNL story still? Is that something that you're still tracking in in your reporting and the stories oh, you're yeah. telling? Early and often. Oh, early and often. So what's it seems that that you know that, that SNL uh, was heading in that that southward direction and and um, largely I believe and correct me if I'm wrong here thanks to Alec Baldwin and uh, um, his unbelievable impersonation of Donald Trump uh, has started to go in the complete opposite direction. Is this is this a new invention for SNL, a new way of they've learned how to kind of make a comeback, or is this a temporary thing? What do you think, how do you think this part plays out? I think it's as old as the show. I think that the history of SNL is, kind of reads like an EKG, and there have been times when it's been more popular than other times, and actually, as it happens, a lot of those times were in concert with presidential election years um, because it's got such a great legacy dating back to Danny Aykroyd playing Richard Nixon and Chevy playing Gerald Ford. Um, So I think that the country, you know, we used to talk about SNL's effect on the political process and now it's SNL's part of the political process. I mean, if you're, if you're running for president uh, it's almost you know, it's almost assumed that you're going to be on the show. And uh, I think that, you know, it goes, the show goes through down periods when certain cast members leave and other members are growing up on the show. Uh, And yet at the same time, it finds a way to revitalize itself. So I, I think Trump was, Trump was a particular gift to the show without a doubt. Um, particularly following Obama, who was 
a very difficult, probably the most difficult president for the cast to impersonate and to write about, uh, write sketches for in, in the show's history. Um, and part of that is uh, he just doesn't have any real distinguishing specific handles that you can, you know, kind of like tease and, and parody. And so it was, uh, he was, Where, he was whereas difficult. Donald Trump has endless handles you can um, parody. He's got, he's, he's, he's definitely got, uh, yeah, he's, there's definitely some things to uh, play around with there. So, um, but you know, the truth is that the show cannot survive. I mean, the show will survive, but the show will not thrive just on Alec coming out and doing Trump. I mean, by the way, let's not forget Kate McKinnon on uh, with Hillary and, of course, Melissa McCarthy on Sean Spicer. Oh, um, my favorite and, you know, of all, yeah. Just unbelievable. Um, just unbelievable. But I think that, you know, one of the things for this, one of the things that I think fans of the show are going to be looking for this year is you know, more um, sketches and characters that they love and that will be reoccurring. And uh, I think that, you know, last year, the political narrative kind of was such a big part of the show um, that it was like a tsunami that washed over a lot of the other work. I mean, yes, there were some, you know, hilarious sketches. Um, by the way, the, the Tom Hanks... Uh, Black Jeopardy sketches not only was not only brilliant, but it was so profound. I, I if any of your listeners uh, did not get a chance to see it, call it up on YouTube or on the SNL app because it was just fantastic. It was just, just freakingly smart uh, and funny. But um, I think that that's one of the things that you know the show is uh, is anxious to to prove and to pull off this coming season. To, does um, does the uh, the success of certain skits uh, inform how often those skits will be redone um, on the show? Well, I mean, by and large, I, I mean, I think that you're not going to keep on repeating a sketch that, you know, hasn't registered with the audience. Um, what's trickier is whether or not a certain sketch makes air even. Because remember, every week there are sketches that are written and sketches that are even performed at dress rehearsal. So there's been scenery cut and wardrobe made and everything for them. And then they don't see the light of day because they don't make it to the show. So, uh, you know, like Wayne's world, for instance, was a sketch that some people didn't have a lot of faith in. In fact, I think it, Mike Myers told me that I think, and I, I think I remember seeing it. it, it debuted like in the last half hour of the show which is not a traditional birthplace of, uh, you know, of great, uh, great sketches. I mean, not to say that they don't care about it, but, you know, you, you try and program the show so there's some great liftoff. Um, but there it was, and uh, it took off. And I think a lot of the, you know, a lot of the sketches that have been repeated through the years, um, you know, they're, they're brought back because they're crowd favorites. And then you have to worry about, you know, if you're Lauren Michaels, you have to worry about whether or not you're burning the audience out on it. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's another calculus to take into, uh, you know, into consideration. I mean, when Will Ferrell and Sherry O'Terry did like the Spartan cheerleaders, I mean, theoretically they could have done that every week, but you don't want to do that because you might hit diminishing marginal returns. So, 
you know, the actual programming of the show and the formula in terms of what to bring back and when, you know, and how often to bring it back is, is pretty tricky. You said you mentioned earlier that um, that if you're a political candidate, you almost have to go on the show. When did that start for SNL? Was that something? Is that something recent, or does that does that go back decades when people running for office that that were potentially going to be the nominee or even the nominees um, went on the show? Well, I mean, look, it's pretty pretty early on. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, Gerald Ford appeared on the show, and uh, I think that I mean, not every not every president did, but I think that if you, in terms of where, where it started, I mean, certainly in 2004, you know, you had, uh, I guess, well, Kerry was on and uh, I'm trying to think about which presidents, you know, actually came on and which didn't, but, but certainly, I mean, McCain couldn't wait to be on. He was on several times. Uh, Sarah Palin came on and, uh, Obama came on, Hillary came on, so and Trump, of course, came on. So I think you got uh, certainly over the last decade. Do they? Do they? Do they um, uh, I mean, you, you mentioned Palin and, and McCain and so on and so forth, and they're, it's very clear that it's you know this is a these are comedians that are mostly liberal and and they like to make fun of of those particular people more so than necessarily others. I mean, Hillary definitely got her fair share of it. Uh, is there some sort of deal that they cut where, oh, we won't make fun of you too much or you don't have to do these things? Or, or is it just kind of like, okay, well, this is just it. I'm going on and, and I may be the, bun- the brunt of most of the jokes. Uh, well, I can say with, you know, a bunch of confidence that I don't think there's ever been a deal cut like that. Um, I, I, it's just not in SNL's DNA. I think that one thing that does happen, though, and it's funny because for the updated version of the of Live from New York, I was talking with Paula Pell, who's a just, you know, fantastically gifted writer on the show, and she's sometimes been on air. And uh, she, when Sarah Palin was coming to the show, she had, you know, rehearsed this big speech that she was going to give Sarah Palin because, uh, you know, she has a female partner and she was very upset about Sarah Palin's uh, stance position on, you know, same sex issues. And she went up to her and then decided to, when she kind of met her and she was very nice and she just kind of talks about chickening out, so to speak, and not getting on her soapbox. Uh, So sometimes I think just meeting the people can soften some edges. Um, But I don't think SNL ever really pulls punches. If they, if they want to go someplace with a with a political person, or for that matter, any public figure, they're going to go there. Hmm. So, um, just uh, just winding down now and uh, and wrapping up um, here. Uh, y- you are planning the Origins podcast as a series. What's uh, what's next on your after Curb Your Enthusiasm? What are you going to be looking at the origins of? I'm going to be going into movies and music and uh, sports, architecture, even relationships. So it's just going to cover a lot of different bases. And uh, I mean, that's part of the reason why I was attracted to doing it, because it winds up being a, uh, you know, playground for a lot of my different interests and uh, and passions. And, uh, you know, I mean, I have to be passionate about a topic because, it's kind of an exhausting process to put together and to do all the reporting and the interviewing and then the editing and writing with it. But, um, 
if I if I love it, as is the case with Curb, um, you know that that certainly makes the journey, uh, you know, pretty damn fun. Well, I look forward to listening to more. Thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, everyone can find the podcast on where where can they look for it? Uh, it's on Apple Podcasts, and uh, well, wherever you wherever you get your podcasts, and where you can just. Google Origins with James Andrew Miller, and uh, it'll lead you right to a button to download. But thanks for having me. Thank you, and it's uh, I've I've just started listening to the to the to the podcast, and it's fantastic. So I'm excited oh, to dive in more and hear some of those stories. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks to my guest today, James Andrew Miller. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the High with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work and my editors at Vanity Fair. And thank you to you, the listener. I will see you next week.